This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership, complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your offer. This week, I'm going to recommend Great Mythologies of the World, part of the Great Courses series, covering the mythologies of Europe, the Americas, Asia, Africa, and the Middle East. This course is all about what makes mythological stories so important, distinctive, and fascinating. I've just started working through it myself, and I'm really excited to see where it goes from here. Go to audibletrial.com slash japan to claim your copy. Hello, and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 116, One Man Yoshida. This week, we're going to do another biography. Our focus is a man often neglected in the history of the 20th century, but whose impact, in retrospect, was pretty tremendous. His efforts helped salvage Japan's position after the disaster of World War II, and his leadership led to a miracle totally unexpected by international observers. The re-entry of Japan as a major economic power on the world stage within 20 years of its crushing defeat. Yet his legacy is not totally unambiguous, as we'll see. The man I'm talking about is easily the most important Japanese statesman of the 20th century, Yoshida Shigeru. Yoshida was born in Yokosuka to the south of Tokyo, site of the Imperial Navy's primary shipyards, on September 22, 1878. A few days before his birth, his father, Takeuchi Tsuna, was arrested for plotting against the Meiji government. Takeuchi was from Tosa Domain on Shikoku, which, as we will discuss, was intimately involved in the alliance against the Tokugawa shogunate, which overthrew the old samurai government in 1868. Takeuchi, however, became disenchanted with the new government because it was dominated by men from the more powerful domains that had overthrown the Tokugawa, particularly Satsuma and Choshu. He thus joined up with a movement we've talked about only in passing so far, the Freedom and People's Rights Movement, or Jiu Minken Undo. This was Japan's first liberal political movement, modeled on European progressive political ideology that had grown out of the French Revolution. Unfortunately, Takeuchi got involved with the more extreme wing of the movement, which tried to launch an insurrection at the same time as Saigo Takamori's abortive rebellion in Satsuma in 1877. The plan failed, and Takeuchi was rounded up the following year. Before his son's birth, Takeuchi Tsuna had agreed with a friend of his, Yoshida Kenzo, that the former's next son should be adopted by the latter. Yoshida and his wife had no children of their own, and in such cases, adoption was not uncommon. Now, we should briefly discuss one of the more salacious stories surrounding the birth of Yoshida Shigeru, 
that he was not born to his birth father's wife. On the family register, his mother is listed as unknown. In fact, she was a geisha whom Takeuchi Tsuna frequented, shall we say. Now, that sort of thing was not unusual in Japanese society at the time, or arguably today. Still, it seems to have left something of a mark on young Yoshida. His wife would later suggest that the reason her husband seemed so enamored of spending his own time with Geisha was that, quote, Geisha's sons like Geisha. A statement that Yoshida's biographer, John Dower, referred to as, quote, an intriguing Oedipal suggestion. Yoshida spent all of nine days with his mysterious birth mother before being sent to his new adoptive family. He would have occasional interactions with his birth father after that, most notably receiving a samurai sword from him as a gift. However, their interactions were always limited, and Yoshida seems to have kept his birth father deliberately at a distance. He later remarked that the only thing the two of them had in common was that, quote, they had both been in jail. Yoshida Shigeru was very fortunate in his adoption. Instead of being the fifth son of a family and an illegitimate son at that, he was now the only son of an extremely wealthy house. His adoptive father, Yoshida Kenzo, had gotten into the shipping business working as a government contractor and had made some pretty serious bank doing it. In addition, Yoshida Kenzo died when his adoptive son was only nine years old leaving the child a substantial sum of money, around 500,000 yen, which is roughly equivalent to $42 million in modern currency, if I'm doing the math right. The fortune catapulted young Yoshida into the ranks of Japan's wealthy elite, and ensured that he would never want for anything in his life. Probably the most important result of the adoption, however, was the atmosphere young Yoshida was raised in. Being a shipping concern... The Yoshida family enterprise was very internationalist in character. Yoshida Kenzo had lived for a time in the United Kingdom and was extremely Anglophilic. He raised his son with an appreciation for English culture and in a household environment that prized internationalism, while retaining an older sort of Confucian ethic to it as well. That edge of Confucian morality came from his adoptive mother, Yoshida Kotoko who was the child of a family of Confucian scholars. Her grandfather, Sato Isai, was extremely important in late Tokugawa Confucianism. Kotoko's desire to instill her son with good Confucian values meant that, as a child, the schools he attended were generally old-school Tokugawa ones, with an emphasis not on new Western education, but on Chinese classics and traditional Chinese ethics and moral thinking. This education would have a profound impact on Yoshida, and help to inform his center-right political thinking. Now eventually he would go to a modern school, the Gakushuin, or Peers School, an educational institution set up for the cream of the Japanese aristocracy. This was far and away the most prestigious school of the Meiji period, and getting in meant that Yoshida was able to start forging connections in the highest levels of Japanese society and what connections they were. At the time he enrolled, Gakushuin's headmaster was one Konoe Atsumaro, soon to be father of Konoe Fumimaro, the future prime minister whose lack of political skill would steer Japan into disaster in 1937 and again in 1941. 
His lecturer on military affairs, meanwhile, was none other than a young naval officer named Suzuki Kantaro, with whom we have just spent a good amount of time as the man who would eventually head the cabinet, which decided on surrender in 1945. After graduation, Yoshida managed to pass the entrance exams for Tokyo Imperial University, and to get admitted to its law department, the most prestigious part of the university where future bureaucrats, diplomats, and politicians got their start. He graduated in 1907 with middling grades, but still managed to do well enough to get accepted into the diplomatic service. He also spent a good amount of time slumming it in the streets of Tokyo. This would actually prove to be a big part of his long-term success. His highbrow education meant that he could operate easily in the rarefied circles of the Japanese elite, but unlike most of them, he could also slum it a little bit. For example, he hugely enjoyed performances of Rakugo, which is a sort of traditional stand-up comedy in Japan, and this gave him a more populist touch, though he himself was not a populist. He also managed to secure a very nice marriage of convenience to Makino Yukiko, daughter of Makino Nobuaki. Makino was part of the younger generation of Meiji leaders and maintained a close friendship with, among others, Ito Hirobumi. Makino Nobuaki would eventually, with Sayonji Kinmochi, help lead Japan's delegation to the Versailles Peace Conference after World War I, and would later become foreign minister and then lord keeper of the Privy Seal, the personal advisor to the emperor. All in all, a pretty good person to be connected to. And Yoshida really did work that connection. He was able to use it to secure a series of prestigious diplomatic postings around the world, including to the United Kingdom, to Italy, and to China, helping to secure Japan's new place in the limelight as the first non-Western great power. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on each of these individual postings. I'm just going to touch briefly on his views of the United Kingdom, the United States, and China. I just want to use them to drive home a single point. Throughout this period of his career, Yoshida developed his political views, and those views revolved not around liberal internationalism, but helping to expand Japan's power and prestige. In other words, he was not a diplomat because he believed in Wilsonian ideals of the Brotherhood of Man or anything like that, but because he believed that diplomacy would help secure Japan's prestige abroad. This is important because it gets to the heart of what the Americans misunderstood about Yoshida when they eventually tapped him for the role of Prime Minister. He was not an internationalist. He did not have deeply held convictions about the merits of Wilsonianism. Yoshida Shigeru was raised in the heyday of the Japanese Empire and believed very much in the cause of Japanese greatness, power, and prestige. However, he felt that in the last analysis, that power and prestige was best secured by working with pre-existing world powers and using their help to secure Japan's position. So while he was consistently pro-Western and particularly pro-British and later pro-American, it was mostly because he felt those people were good to have in Japan's corner. That's not to say his outlook was entirely unsentimental. In particular, his adoptive father's Anglophilia very strongly influenced Yoshida, who looked at Great Britain as the most civilized nation on Earth. 
In his own recollections, his most treasured posting was to the UK after the Versailles Conference, where he got to spend his time in what he felt was the heart of world civilization. Of course, it's worth noting that what he found so civilized about the UK was not liberalism or parliamentary democracy or anything like that. He thought the class stratification and aristocracy of the UK was its most ideal feature because it put the riffraff in its place. Yoshida never served in the United States, but the rising power of the Americans during and after World War I meant that he did have to reckon with the U.S. in at least some capacity. Yoshida respected American power, but tended to look down on American ideals, both at home with their emphasis on social equality and abroad with their emphasis on liberalism over power politics. He thought this outlook was hopelessly naive and potentially dangerous. In particular, he looked at the Washington Treaties, the 1923 attempt to limit the size of fleets worldwide in order to prevent a naval arms race, as naive in the extreme and practically guaranteeing the kind of race for weaponry they were supposed to prevent. In Yoshida's view, the Americans were bumblers, blinded into ignoring what actually was, because of their preference for what they felt should be. But in the end, they had to be respected and dealt with because of their national power. Still, he seems to have liked some Americans. In particular, he struck up a close friendship with U.S. Ambassador to Japan, Joseph Grew. The place Yoshida spent the most time, however, was China. If anything, he was a China specialist by training. His background of traditional Chinese education meant that he could navigate the world of high Chinese culture and the Chinese literati very easily, impressing local leadership with his knowledge of and respect for the literary culture of the Middle Kingdom. However, again, it would be a mistake to label Yoshida as pro-China in the same way that those Japanese who supported the Republican nationalist platform of Dr. Sun Yat-sen were. Yoshida was not interested in Chinese unity or power, because that would conflict with his primary goal, Japanese unity and power. Yoshida did advocate for respect and knowledge of Chinese culture, but only because he felt that if Japan was going to be the major power in Asia, it behooved the Japanese to know more about the people who they were going to dominate. He was not against Japanese expansion into China at all. He simply felt that cultural understanding of the Chinese provided a way to work with the existing Chinese upper classes to cement Japanese rule. This was an idea about how to run an empire that he got from, you guessed it, the British. He wanted to copy the British policy of co-opting native upper classes to support the empire wherever possible. Now, during this period, Yoshida did also develop some of his famous personal idiosyncrasies. In public, you always see him in a suit or a tuxedo, but in private, he dressed far more simply, in a white kimono with a walking stick. He also developed kind of a weird sense of humor that, unfortunately, I can't provide many good examples of, because it, like all good Japanese humor, revolved almost entirely around untranslatable puns using kanji, or written ideographic characters. To give one sort of example... During a brief posting in Korea working with embassy staff whom he considered foolish in the extreme, Yoshida complained to a colleague about the infestation of deer in the embassy. The colleague, naturally a bit perplexed, 
asked what he meant. There were no deer in the embassy. Yoshida replied that he was referring to the horse-deer variety. The Chinese characters for horse and deer together in Japanese are pronounced baka, meaning idiot. So that gives you some idea of the man's policies, and should make it clear why, as Japan became increasingly isolated in the 1930s, Yoshida was one of the few people making a lot of noise about how the path Japan was on would lead to disaster. He pushed very hard against war with China in 1937, and against war with the United States in 1941, but while he was fairly senior in the diplomatic corps, he didn't have enough clout by himself to stop things. During the war, Yoshida served in the home government in a few different positions. Most notably, he was for a time munitions minister, and oversaw the construction of underground, theoretically bomb-proof munitions factories. However, he never let go of his objection to the whole project of war. After Pearl Harbor, he remained secretly in contact with U.S. Ambassador Joseph Grew, and ensured shipments of food and supplies to the American embassy before the Americans were repatriated. After the Japanese defeat at Midway, Yoshida reached out to friends in the government, including former Prime Minister Konoe, to push for peace negotiations. When that plan was rejected, he began organizing an informal network of allies to continue to pressure for an end to the war. Like Yoshida himself, this group was overwhelmingly conservative and opposed the war not out of some kind of high-minded opposition to death and destruction, but because they felt that the war itself was bad policy that represented an existential threat to the Japanese state. More than anything else, their worry was that the war would end in defeat, and defeat could open the road to a revolution that would overturn the conservative and aristocratic Japanese monarchy. Unfortunately for Yoshida, his little group was discovered by the authorities, and he was placed under arrest in April 1945. He spent the remaining months of the war in prison. Ironically, however, that little prison stay would launch his career going forward. You see, since Yoshida was in jail when the Americans arrived in Japan, he was not purged by the Allies from the Japanese government. Their reasoning was, essentially, if the wartime government wanted to lock him up, obviously he's on our side. Which was true-ish. Yoshida was certainly willing to work with the Americans, but he did not really identify with American policy goals of democratizing and demilitarizing Japan. Yoshida cared only about reviving Japanese power. So Yoshida was released from prison and went into politics, where he joined the Liberal Party, which, by the way, is liberal in the European sense of being pro-free market, not liberal in the American sense of being progressive. One year later, Yoshida made the big time. In the general elections, the party of sitting Prime Minister Shidehara Kijiro lost out very badly, and the liberals won big time. Yoshida was the most experienced person they had as a result of being one of the few unpurged pre-war government figures, so they nominated him for the role of prime minister. The Americans, thinking, again, we got this guy out of prison, he must be on our side, approved him. And that's how Yoshida Shigeru became prime minister. Barring one short interruption in 1947, he would stay in that role for eight years, retiring in 1954. 
Now, we're not going to get too much into the weeds of post-war politics, both because I'm saving that for a series on the occupation, and because this episode is already running a bit long. What I want to concentrate on more than anything is the way Yoshida's own views helped set Japan on its post-war course. Basically, what Yoshida wanted for Japan was to defend it against socialist upheaval as much as possible, while working to revive its economy and put the country back on its feet. His plan for doing so became known as the Yoshida Doctrine. Now, at no point did that doctrine ever get formalized. He didn't write it down somewhere. Instead, historians looking backwards have read out a series of clear rules of operation from Yoshida's own actions. Broadly speaking, the Yoshida Doctrine had three components. First, Japan would farm out its security to the United States. The Americans wanted to use Japan as a forward base in an emerging Cold War with the Soviet Union. Japan should let them do just that. American bases could protect Japan, which could then avoid foreign entanglements and maintain a small military. Which, by the way, was point number two. Point number three was that all the money thus saved could be plowed into economic recovery and rebuilding, thus quickly reviving the Japanese economy and once more making Japan into a major player. The key to all of this, ironically enough, was the constitution given to Japan by the Americans. More specifically, Article 9 of the constitution, which reads, quote, Aspiring sincerely to an international peace based on justice and order, the Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation, and the threat or use of force as a means of settling international disputes. To accomplish the aim of the preceding paragraph, land, sea, and air forces, as well as other war potential, will never be maintained. The right of belligerency of the state will not be recognized. End quote. Yoshida would use the text of Article 9 to deflect any attempts by the Americans to pressure Japan into taking a more active role in the Cold War or into providing more for its own self-defense. In a meeting with the Cabinet Legal Bureau in 1954, where he instructed them to draft a new interpretation of Article 9 prohibiting collective self-defense, and thus dodging any chance for Japan getting involved in a broad security arrangement like NATO, Yoshida said, quote, It may seem devious, but let the Americans handle our security. If the Americans complain, the Constitution gives us a perfect pretext. Nor was Yoshida averse to using other tricks to remove American pressure to rearm. One of the more famous stories about him involves a visit by American ambassador John Foster Dulles in 1950 to discuss final terms for a peace treaty. Dulles had made it clear that one of the goals of the visit was to get the Japanese to contribute more to their own defense. Yoshida's personal doctor was a member of the Socialist Party, and Yoshida just happened to mention the visit to an aide during a checkup. Lo and behold, when Dulles landed in Japan, a crowd of socialists was waiting at the airport, protesting any American attempts to strong-arm Japan into rearming. When Dulles then met with Yoshida, Yoshida said that, while it was unfortunate, the popular pressure and demonstrations made it clear that the Japanese people did not want to rearm, and really, while he wanted to help the Americans, what could he do? After all, thanks to the Americans, Japan was a democracy now, 
and the people's will clearly opposed rearmament. Dulles, outmaneuvered thoroughly, relented. In addition to the Yoshida Doctrine, Yoshida's other major contribution to post-war Japan took place after his retirement from the office of Prime Minister. He was one of the driving figures behind taking the two conservative center-right parties in Japan, the Liberal and Democratic parties, and organizing a merger between them, reforming them into the Liberal Democratic Party, which has governed Japan with only two interruptions from 1955 to the present day. Now, it may seem like I'm skimming pretty fast through Yoshida's post-war career, and there's a reason for that. First, we've covered a lot of this before. Second, in my opinion, all of this follows pretty naturally from Yoshida's pre-war experiences. We've talked about his concern with Japanese power first and foremost, and so it makes sense that reviving that power would be his overriding goal. However, he was never a military man and clashed with the military often in his career, so trying to rebuild Japan via military strength was out of the picture, even if the Americans would have let him do it, which was unlikely at best. Instead, Yoshida used the tools he had available, shrewd diplomacy from his time abroad, and an understanding of national wealth and power from his upbringing in a trading family and from his time in the economic powerhouse of the early 20th century UK. Here is a really good example of a leader whose policies suited the mood of the nation. Japanese people were no longer willing to tolerate or support war, but the message of non-involvement and national wealth really resonated very well. Now, not all of Yoshida's initiatives were a success. In particular, he pressed very hard for recognizing the People's Republic of China and trying to use the antagonism between Mao and Joseph Stalin... Yoshida correctly predicted Mao would resent being in a subordinate position to split the Chinese away from the Soviet camp. Such a maneuver would provide access to lucrative Chinese markets for American and Japanese goods, while undermining Soviet power in East Asia. The Americans ultimately rejected his advice, but of course the events of Nixon's opening of China in the 1970s would ultimately vindicate Yoshida's reading of the situation. Yoshida was obviously not the prime minister the Americans thought they were getting when they let him out of jail. The representatives of the American government were pretty irritated by Yoshida, whom they saw as putting the rest of the free world in danger with his willful obstructionism and his desire to put Japan first. Things actually got so frosty that in 1952, the Central Intelligence Agency briefly considered backing a military coup against Yoshida to be led by the former private secretary of Tojo Hideki and supported by one faction of an early incarnation of the self-defense forces. After the coup was completed, so the theory went, a more militant conservative, Hatoyama Ichiro, would support rearmament and be installed as prime minister. The plot got dropped before it could get off the ground, presumably when somebody pointed out that military coups in the 1930s were how Japan got involved in this damn mess to begin with. Still, it's indicative of the degree of strain between the Americans and Yoshida's government that the idea was even considered at all. Now eventually, what ended Yoshida's tenure as prime minister was not an American-backed coup, but good old-fashioned internal politics. The number of compromises Yoshida made in order to stay in power infuriated his domestic opponents. 
opponents on the left and the right started referring to him as one man Yoshida, using the English word one man to indicate what they saw as an autocratic style of government where he would ignore their opinions and just do what he felt was right. Left-leaning MPs disliked the fact that his government wouldn't recognize the new order of things in China. Right-leaning ones disliked his willingness to sign a very unequal peace treaty with the United States, which gave the Americans a lot of leeway to interfere in Japanese politics. In the end, these two factions brought him down in 1954. However, none of them could agree on a replacement. The immediate man to take the job, Hatayama Ichiro, lasted only a few years before his support for rearmament cost him too much. His successor, Ishibashi Tanzan, barely made it a few months. The third man to enter the revolving door, Kishi Nobusuke, managed to stick around for a few years, but was ousted in 1960 when his attempts to renegotiate the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty drew the ire of the Japanese left, who viewed the whole American alliance as degrading and immoral. In the aftermath, a funny thing happened. Yoshida's ideas came back into currency. He himself did not. At 82 years old in 1960, he was a bit too old for office. However, two of his political disciples, Ikeda Hayato and Sato Esaku, took control of the conservative Liberal Democratic Party. They then used the LDP as a vehicle to implement Yoshida's ideas. The Yoshida Doctrine would remain in force, and Japan would stay out of international affairs and focus on economic growth. This idea proved enormously successful, and the wealth it created was enough to paper over disagreements on all other issues. Yoshida's ideas became the focal point of a new consensus on the direction of Japan. Even when his followers eventually left office, future prime ministers continued to follow the basic tenet of economy first, and security issues in defense left to the United States. It's only been in the past few decades that a serious challenge among Japanese politicians to this whole Yoshida doctrine has emerged, and only in the past few years has that challenge looked like it had any shot at success. Yoshida himself would die in 1967, at the age of 89. Arguably, Yoshida Shigeru had the single greatest influence on the shape of post-war Japan. His ideas formed the basis of the whole sense of national mission prevalent in the Japanese government for the next 40 years. Even now, a quarter century after the end of the Cold War, his policy of putting the economy first and offloading security issues to the U.S. still has defenders. I think there are two important lessons to be drawn from his career, personally. First, there is the key issue of personal flexibility. Yoshida accurately assessed what was possible for Japan, what its weaknesses were in the post-war era, and built his policies around that. His approach to politics was fundamentally unprincipled in that it was governed by what he thought was possible, not by some higher notion of political theory. This is, I think, an important point for political leaders to focus on. Idealism is great, but in the end, we can all only play the hand we're dealt. Yoshida understood this and didn't allow what he wanted to get in the way of what was possible. Second, there's the fact that no formulation of politics lasts forever. Yoshida succeeded because he was willing to change his approach to Japanese power, moving away from the idea of empire and towards the idea of economics. 
Today, Japan has outgrown that vision, but nobody has succeeded in articulating a new vision of the future. Japan has outgrown the Yoshida approach, but so far nobody matching his vision has emerged to articulate a new direction. That's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks to Ellen Brown for donating to support the show. To join her, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit ideas for future episodes, check out the podcast webpage at www.historyofjapan.wordpress.com or our Facebook page at facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for the start of what is probably going to be our longest series ever on the fall of the samurai and the rise of modern Japan.